Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast. It is so great to be with you today. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, an author, and the originator of the awareness integration theory. Our conversations are more about what matters most in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I am excited to chat with Christine Emba. She is a columnist for the Washington Post, writing about ideas in society. Prior to this, she was the Hilton Kramer Fellow in criticism at the New Criterion and a deputy editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit, focusing on technology and innovation we will be talking about Rethinking Sex. Yep, that's the title of her new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. And oh boy, that book is a provocation. We have an amazing conversation together. Subscribe to this podcast, my YouTube channel. And um, the podcast obviously is um, Heartfelt Chat, Inner Voice, Heartfelt Chat with Dr. Fujian. My YouTube channel, Dr. Fujian Zane, and connect with me through my website, fujanzane.com or any of the social media um, with Dr. Fujian Zane. I'd love to hear from you and know what you want. What are the topics you want me to talk about and the guests you want me to bring? So here it is. I bring you Christine Emba. <laughs> Christine Emba, everyone, Rethinking Sex. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a joy. I loved your book. I love the way you write. It is, it's bold. It says everything. <laughs> it's funny, but deep and gets to the point right away. Like there is no fluff around here. And then yet it's like, smacks you in the face and then rounds you up with sweetness and then like slaps you again and then rounds you up with sweetness anyway this was my experience I don't know if this wow is, <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to you wanted your audience to have this experience but I just wanted you know it had an, a beautiful impact thank you you know that <laughs> I don't know that that was the exact impression that I was that I was going for, um, but you know it is subtitled a provocation. So I did write it. You know I wrote rethinking sex in hopes that it would kind of help some people wake up actually um, to realizations that they needed to have. Yes. So one of the most important facts that you say is we are trying to solve the wrong problem with sexuality, especially with all of the issues that are coming up with the Me Too movement. There's a lot of um, shift, a cultural shift um, when it's coming to the public, uh, the media, the laws. Um, however, you're looking at all of these matters that they're trying to cover one angle and they're not really covering all the other angles that are important and mainly why people, hum, human beings do what they do. So share with us. 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the major threads in rethinking sex is the question of consent. Um, and, you know, post Me Too, um, even over just the past 10 years and how we talk about sex on college campuses and online and in discussions, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, did you get consent? Did you get consent from the other person before you have a sexual encounter with them? But our focus on consent makes it begin to feel sometimes like we are making consent the only standard for good sex. The only way we judge whether sex is good or not is whether it's consensual or not. But in you know the Me Too moment and in my interviews for Rethinking Sex, one of the things that I came across again and again were women and men, but especially women who were having these sexual encounters that you know they described as depressing or sad or even traumatic, but they were ostensibly consensual. So it seemed that consent was not doing a good enough job, basically, um, making sure that sex was, was good. And I think that that is because so much of our conversation when it comes to sex, um, especially in talking about consent, revolves around defining the limits, basically. You know, how far can something go before it crosses the line and becomes non-consensual, becomes outrageous or even illegal? How bad can things get? But I think when we focus on consent especially, we're settling for asking what is legal rather than what is, you know, actually good. Consent is an essential baseline, of course, but it's a floor and it never should have been the ceiling. And so if consent is the only standard by which we're judging sex, we're really punting on the big questions, you know, whether that consent was fairly gotten, whether it's even good for us to be doing what we've gotten consent to do. And most importantly, I think what it actually takes for an encounter to be not just consensual, not just allowed, but actually moral, actually ethically good. I think you uh, bring a lot of different points in the book. Uh, some of the conversations that I've had with my clients and uh, people around is um, the format that the relationship is around. So sometimes the relationship is uh, in, in a work environment or professional environment when somebody's going into wanting to have a particular profession or they're networking because of their idea of why they want to be in that environment is something else. And then um, there might be alternate um, or added version of in, intentions that are brings people together. So not only they're there in order to meet each other for work purposes, now, uh, there are two people that might even get attracted. There are people who might be interested in sexuality or, as you say in your book, maybe just interested in connection and being together and loving or even in relationship. So there are multiple types of intentionality when people let's, let comes in, come in together. I think another factor which comes in is the hunting aspect of the, you know, the exploration of enjoyment of an excitement of coming together and being attracted and being attractive and some of all of these gets convoluted sometimes based on what each person has an intentionality and what the outcome shows up and sometimes the outcome of all of this shows up as uh 
hurt for someone, feeling of betraying, feeling of being used, um, um, and at times abused. And is this also something that you experienced as you were talking to people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another part of the book, Rethinking Sex, was the idea that we have these assumptions about what a sexual encounter should be or what sex even means, um, sort of cultural assumptions almost, but often they don't really line up with what actual individuals want um, from their interactions with each other or from sex overall. And, you know, I'm arguing in this book that we need to be more honest um, about what sex actually means to us, about what we're actually looking for in our encounters. You know, when it comes to intention, um, I just, I spoke to a lot of people in this book who, you know, talk about, you know, sort of the bad sex that they're having. And, you know, I ask, okay, well, why are you doing it? <laughs> um, why are you having these interactions? And so many of them say like, well, you know, I thought this was what I, I was supposed to be doing as a young person. Like I, we talk about sex so much as the thing that makes you kind of an adult or sort of a, an agent in the world. So I figure, you know, this is just what I should be doing to be sort of a modern young feminist or liberal or urbanite. But that's not actually what they want. You know, they don't want to be having, you know, kind of semi-anonymous sex or these casual encounters or even these consensual hookups that don't really feel good to them. You know, when I ask them, what, what would you actually like from sex? Like, what would good sex look like to you? They say things like, you know, caring, empathy, um, commitment, you know, someone being there who sort of sees me and, and listens to me. But, you know, many of them feel, I think, that that's almost sort of lame to say, you know, that it's kind of uncool to want a relationship or to, to want to have feelings, even though in many cases, the feelings are, are the best part. Um, and so we also have to ask, you know, what is pushing us um, away from acknowledging sort of our real desires, our real understanding of what sex means and could be, and asking us to accept something else that's probably even lesser than what it could be. I've also experienced both with women and men, and I think women uh, get distracted more than men. The men, uh, and let me explain what I'm trying to say. Um, what I've experienced with men and women in a, part, a particular time of their life, where they do have the desire to be in a relationship, to be close, to be not necessarily in a committed relationship, which has all of it, but like you said, to be close to someone, to feel um, that they're valued in, in their interaction together and even go into a relationship. However, in order to do that and take that path on, then they do a lot of times multiple dating, they go online dating, they um, start going into these types of dates or, um, and then some of these dates end up having the sexual experiences. Um, they get very disappointed at times because like you said, the sexual interaction itself is not to, the, to their pleasing, but some more, more than anything, it's the lack of that connection that they receive at the end, which is was an emptiness that comes after that. Hmm. Um, and, and that's where it doesn't feel good. And I've, and I've heard that from both men and women. It's not, you know, a lot of times there is this myth that men 
enjoy just having sex with anyone and, and uh, women are the one who are a little bit more picky, but that's not the truth. The, 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 women and men both really desire that type of an enjoyment of a conversation, enjoyment of a connection, being seen as a human being before you share your body with another human being. And I think this is um, where I also read in your book, a, a kind of opening these types of myth that shows up around sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this question of, of being seen as, as a human being is one of the things that we're almost not talking about enough. You know, I think we have a lot of cultural tropes about what sex is supposed to look like, but we actually don't spend a lot of time talking about what sex actually is, what it means, and, you know, what we really want from it. You know, we treat it as sort of an action that can be almost separated from, from us as sort of our, our person as human beings. Like it's just another activity like, like any other. Um, but, you know, I would argue that actually it's meaningful. Um, it's meaningful to us as, as human persons. And another thing that is meaningful to us as human beings is our real desire to be, to be treated as human, to be seen, to be, to be listened to, to be cared for. And again, you know, going back to the question of consent, if you're just asking, you know, what am I allowed to do to this person? that I get permission to do a thing, you know, with this person in this encounter, you're not actually asking about the other person. That's not really about sort of seeing or encountering the other person. Uh, that's in fact, something of a selfish formulation where you're sort of transacting in an encounter with someone else, not really engaging them in, in relationship, I think. Um, and so that's actually why I suggested a better standard for for our encounters is willing the good of the other, you know, um, which is, it's Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and it was his definition of, of love. And so willing the good of the other kind of implicates a couple of things. First, you have to have some idea of what the good is when it comes to sex or when it comes to any other encounter. And the good meaning what sort of leads to our human flourishing. And that is that sort of being seen, being cared for, being, being loved and known. Um, and then it means that you have to will the good for the other person uh, in any encounter that you're having. So not just thinking about what you're getting out of it, not just seeing yourself, but also you know, creating empathy, um, seeing the other person and caring about their good and their well-being as, as much as you care for your own. And obviously this is a really high standard, you know, to reach. And it's an ideal, of course, we'll all fall short of it. But even trying to think about the other person as a human being deserving of, you know, that willing of the good is so many steps further ahead than where we often start now. You have this beautiful story that talks about, um, and I'm not going to tell the story because I want you guys <laughs> to go with it, but it is about someone who, um, and it's funny the way you put it and the other person is telling you uh, that they are in the middle of an interaction, a sexual interaction, and they're questioning whether the other person respects them or not. And, um, and I hear this so much from especially women um, that they do want to be respected in, um, in the way that they are with another person. And then the conversation shows up in this sentence, which I think it was, it's beautiful. Um, and it says, 
in your book says, can we not love each other even for a single day or for a single moment? And that is so true. And I know that then word love might have, you know, too much of a uh, weight on it for some people. Uh, but more than anything is what you're saying, the willingness to, to care for another human being, to love another human being. And it's not necessarily, okay, I'm going to love this person as if we're going to be committed, getting married and have children for the rest of our life. But it means that I can have a love of a human being and with the human being who's in front of me and love myself and them at that moment and be connected with them. If I'm going to have a physical connection with them, can I also have an emotional connection with them? And may I have uh, an, you know, a, a cognitive connection with them so that at the time that we choose to be together, then that togetherness really means a togetherness versus uh, an objectifying the other person, you know, treating them like it's a blow up doll. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, or a robot who talks and I'm just use, utilizing them because of my own needs. And part of what you're sharing in your book about willingness to see the other person and see the good in the other person allows you sometimes to get out of this fantasy that you came in to, to this relationship with. And the, and the fantasy is not only, and I know that you know there's a, a lot of, okay, men want to have sex and women uh, get abused, but there's also, as we see a lot in media, that women might also have a lot of um, uh, preconditioned fantasy about going and, you know, if I'm going to this date, that means that, um, you know, we're going to be in love and, you, and we're going we're gonna to get married. Or mm -hmm. if I go to such a, you know, pay and try to be in a place that all celebrities are, and I finally get to connect with one of the celebrities is because... I have this fantasy of I'm going to be the wife of a celebrity. So the fantasy takes them into a whole different place, which how is that fantasy necessarily different than maybe another fantasy that just says, I just want to get, you know, hook up sex and I don't even want to know their name. So somehow all of these fantasies preclude, they don't allow the person to, to see the other human being as who they are because they are just becoming object of our fantasy. And that's what we're going after. Is that also something that um, I'm, I'm, I kind of got from your book? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, first of all, I love that you brought up that story, which I, I also won't give away because it's a teeny bit X-rated, um, but also was, you know, a kind of funny encounter, a funny and revealing encounter to hear about. You know, in this encounter, this woman, um, she's with this guy and sort of, a, yeah, as you said, trying to ask about whether she'll be respected. And the guy tells her like, no, this, let's just like not talk about that. This is just about lust. Um, and she can't help herself, but to say, okay, but it's not just about lust. Like, can we just even try to love each other for just a single day, just a single hour that we're here together? And what she's really asking for is, you know, for this person, yeah, to, to not treat her like an object, uh, to not treat her, you know, like a blow up doll with whom he can fulfill his lust, but to see her as a person and, and to treat her like that, even in this moment, even if this is the last, the first and last time, you know, they see each other. And I thought it was incredibly brave for her, you know, to say this in this situation, um, but also sad, you know, that 
you even have to sort of say, to ask that, can you just see me as a person? Can you, can you treat me with this care? Um, and, you know, it made me wonder about some of the currents in our, you know, in our current sexual moment where asking for that level of care, that level of being seen is, is an imposition. You know, how did, how did we get to that place where our, our expectations of both what other people see in us and what we should do for other people are, are so skewed. And in some sense, you know, this is a question that's larger than just sex, right? In our, in our moment, we think of almost everything in sort of economic and capitalist and transactional terms. You know, what can we get from another person? We're in a marketplace, be it sexual or otherwise. You know, how am I sort of trading my way through it? And this sort of economic mindset really makes it hard to see people as, as people. You kind of see them as commodities. And so in these interactions, um, as you're describing, you can kind of come into an encounter with a set intention that doesn't really involve the other person at all. Um, that's really all about sort of what you want to get from them and not about them. And I think both men and women can do that, are both vulnerable to this in, in different ways. But it's, it's something that we're almost trained into doing by society at this point. And so we have to think about ways to push back against it. Very much, especially I think with the in, uh, pornography industry that I've even experienced with some of the couples that I see that um, because of the introduction of pornography and all that is in there, that the concept of just the matter of sexuality as an objectifying or an act without necessarily um, having any type of connection is even entering within the marriages because um, a, a person is so uh, open to consistently seeing pornography every day, sometimes daily, uh, sometimes a couple of times a day as, as they get into it, you know, an addicted mode with it. Um, and then they have, they relieve themselves from that connection as if that connection now um, is a burden to the pleasure. And unfortunately, it's taking a whole different perspective versus it is really the connection that gives you the highest level of pleasure and high anyway, versus just the physical aspect of, you know, the masturbation and then a release. So I think, um, the pressure that you also talk about and you bring a lot of different aspects of history and you know what media brings and what culture is pushing <clears throat> into um, a level where takes you more into just an addictive uh, aspect of sexuality versus uh, the connecting aspect of sexuality, which is more fulfilling and leaves a person more satisfied in their life versus leading to more addiction and anxiety and depression and you know, pills and you know coming to therapy with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, pornography is one of the, the topics I touch on in the book because I think it has become a far more prominent factor um, in our sexual culture than you know people like to talk about. And you know, one of the things that I I sort of push back against in the book is this idea that we can't criticize. Um, 
or that we can't sort of make judgments that some things are better or worse than others. And in the case of pornography, you know, whenever you sort of criticize that and say like, okay, this is teaching young men, especially sort of a, a bad vision of sex, a vision that takes away from intimacy. Um, we shouldn't encourage this. There's so often a pushback that like, well, you know, if you don't like this, like stay out of my bedroom, this is sort of my private desire. It's just what I desire. And, you know, we, we can't judge that. But I feel like it should be easier to say, like, actually, no, we can, we can ask ourselves, why do we want the things that we want? And what would we really want if we, if we had the choice? What would be good for us to want and try and move ourselves, you know, towards that instead of just being satisfied with the status quo if it's, if it's unhealthy for us, if like pornography, it's teaching us to objectify or dehumanize or degrade other people. Um, and I talked to, you know, some young men for this book who, who sort of had this realization themselves, you know, when they realized that they were, you know, for instance, watching too much pornography and it was actually affecting their ability to connect with a real person. You know, I talked to one young man who he realized at a certain point that, you know, he was watching a lot of porn and then he started dating a woman he really liked, but he couldn't actually connect with her because he was so used to reacting to sort of a figure on a screen instead of a real person. And in those cases, you know, in cases like that, we, we need to push ourselves. Um, and societally, we, we need to not just settle for like, you know, well, you do you, that's just like how you feel. It's fine. But actually be able to say like, no, something here is wrong. Um, how do we change it? What do we do about it? Um, because otherwise, you know, we're just allowing ourselves to fail and fail again at finding the connection that we really want, the sort of seenness that we really want and that we should want for others because it contributes to our flourishing, both as individuals and in society as a whole. I think the newness of some aspects uh, gets very exciting for people. I've had clients who come in where you know they've been introduced to uh polyamorous or they've been introduced to um swingers or community and they come in and even they force that upon their mate because it's, it seems to be exciting after a couple of years of marriage and 10 years of marriage it seems like okay we're bored so we're just going to look at what is the newest thing in the society around sexuality and then just go experience the experience um and then obviously there are backlashes that happens within the marriage because exactly what you talk about in, in the book, which is the connection gets severed in a sense. And part of what I keep hearing from your book and reading as I read it is coming back to this term of um, although sexuality is a pleasure aspect, but it, the most effective aspect of that pleasure is connection not only connection to yourself, but also connection to another human being. And when we don't have that connection is where uh, a lot of the other concepts of the um, destruction, disaster, or um, unfulfillment, you know, I'm going from one extreme to the other, um, shows up. This, you, you wrote this so beautifully. I know you talked about it, but you wrote it so beautifully. I just want to share. Willie? Willing the good means caring enough about another person to consider how your action and the consequences thereof might affect them and choosing not to act if the outcome for the other person would be negative. 
This is really like a mutual concern, thinking about the experience of someone other than yourself and working to make sure that their experience is as good as you would hope yours to be. It's taking responsibility for navigating interactions that may seem ambiguous rather than using that ambiguity as an excuse for self-serving misunderstanding um, and overselling sex and underselling our own free will. You wrote beautifully on these. So I just wanted to share um, your words with, with everyone um, to really experience what they can find in this book. Um, and, and then you also wrote that uh, from Epictetus, um, wrote to his students, when you receive an invitation to pleasure, pause. And we need to reclaim the pause. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for reading that. I mean, I think both of those, you know, we've talked a bit already about this idea of connection and willing the good of the other person. Um, I think one thing that unites kind of both of those sections, both the willing the good and the reclaiming the pause is a sense of responsibility, um, a sense of almost duty to care for both the other person and yourself, you know, kind of not just throwing your hands in the air and being like, well, this is desire. This is what I want. I can't do anything about it. I must follow it. But, you know, realizing that we're human beings with agency um, and that we can make choices as to what we pursue and what we don't pursue. So, you know, when I talk about reclaiming the pause in some sense, um, I'm talking about actually, you know, thinking about what we do before we do it. Uh, it's possible to desire something. It's possible to want a sexual encounter and not have it. <laughs> um, to take a moment and say, think about whether this is, this would be willing the other person's good, whether it would be willing your own good. To pause and think, you know, okay, is this thing, is this desire that I'm indulging actually good for me in the long term? Is this habituating me to some kind of bad behavior? Um, is this habituating me to, you know, a form of lost intimacy that will be bad for me moving forward? And, you know, saying, okay, I have the choice to not do this. Um, I, I don't have to have a sexual encounter because you know society is telling me I should, or even because the other person wants it. I can can choose to pause, and in many cases, I think um, there is far less regret that occurs from you know choosing to wait, choosing to exercise judgment, um, than comes from just sort of rushing rushing forth, and being able to reclaim that agency is actually very freeing. You know, if, if you're conditioned to say yes all the time, then it can actually be very freeing to sort of reclaim your no and know how to use that. Yes, absolutely. I um, have actually experienced some of the uh, couples that are being, that are together, not married, that are together, and uh, they've had sexuality in their life before. They've had sex experiences before. But they are in a place in their life that they decided not to have sex, to get to really know each other in all aspects uh, before they choose to have um, intercourse. They might have sexual act, uh, but to really go to the next level of intercourse when they feel um, ready. And the readiness means uh, to them the emotional connection feeling safe with each other and making sure that if they're going to have their bodies being in a union, 
that all other aspect of them emotionally and cognitively, spiritually is also in union. Now that might be extreme for some people, but I'm beginning to see that also. Yeah, I mean, on on some level, it's strange that that that, that seems extreme. Um, and, you know, I would argue for kind of a rethinking of even what our expectations should be around around sex. Because if you think about it, you know, sex is serious, actually. Um, it's a serious space of sort of emotion and connection and, you know, physical sharing um, and, you know, potentially even, you know, creation up to and including the creation of another human being. Um, and we talk about sex so often and make it so meaningful kind of in our language that if it's that serious, we, we should treat it as such. You know, it does make sense to sort of stop and think before going into encounter, before engaging with another person in that way. Um, and it is encouraging, I think, to hear that, that people are doing that. On the dating scene, though, I've also noticed that a lot of times the anxiety or the uh, the culture of uh, drinking and using drugs to kind of uh, enhance the pleasure or minimize anxiety of mm -hmm. you know the beginning parts of the dating um, also allows a little bit of more um, not listening to yourself and your body at that time because you're a little bit more intoxicated and um, you might say yes. Uh, to something that you don't really want, or you're not, you know, all of you is not saying yes, only a part of you is saying yes, because you're intoxicated. Um, in your interviews, have you also uh, seen that drugs and alcohol had anything to do with this process? Well, I mean, if you are, if you're using drugs and alcohol to, to lower your inhibitions, to lower your sort of boundaries and, and anxieties, then necessarily your boundaries will be lower and kind of easier to breach. Um, and, you know, in many cases, um, I feel like a lot of our dating culture does revolve around sort of getting drinks and going out. Um, and that can help sort of people feel less anxious, but also it's fair to, to be careful in those situations to not also, you know, sort of lower our boundaries enough with substances that we agree to things that we, that we don't want to agree to. Because again, I mean, there are still questions of consent here, right? Like, can a person consent when they're drunk or when they're under the influence um, of, you know, drugs? Sure. But also, are we making it kind of easier for ourselves to end up in situations where we consent ostensibly to things that we don't really want? I think that can be a real concern. And sometimes you think you are consenting because at that moment, your body is in a space which you know, desires to have sexuality, but the rest of you is not consenting in a sense. And if you're not even connected to yourself, because I think there's two factors here. One is, am I fully connected to me and all of me and all my desires? And then am I also connected to this other human being to see that goodness, to see whether what I what we're creating here is, is a win-win situation if it's best for both of us. And you probably do need to be not intoxicated to kind of have that assessment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. The act, of, the act of listening is so important here, not just listening to the other person, but listening to yourself. And that, you know, that is actually something that we have to sort of actively practice um, and try to do, especially in a culture that sort of pushes us to 
you know, just do what we want in the moment to not criticize our choices or anyone else's to not look too deeply at things. Um, you know, it, it is actually sort of an act of freedom to be able to sort of be able to take a step back and listen to yourself um, and be accountable to sort of your own desires and your responsibilities to yourself and to other people. Christine and by everyone, rethinking sex a provocation. Christine, um, anything we haven't touched upon that you really want our listeners and viewers to know? Well, I'll let you know that, you know, I'm an opinion columnist at The Post, so you can find me at The Washington Post and on Twitter at Christine Emba and on Instagram at the same handle. Um, and, you know, I will be writing more about sort of society, morals, ideas, and ethics. So I'd encourage you guys to follow along. I love hearing from readers. Beautiful. Christine Emba, Rethinking Sex. It is an amazing book. I think every one of you will enjoy reading it and learn from it and probably find yourself in it somehow. Um, thank you so much, Christine, for taking the time to be with me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.